0: Was the graveyard, graveside service of their grandmother. The crowd was not amused. Can, have you ever been in a very embarrassing situation or, or experienced something with, that you would consider very shameful? Uh, I, I'm gonna share with you something that I think I've shared with, uh, with you before some time ago, but when I was a boy, and, and actually uh, all of my siblings. Uh, wrestled with an issue of bedwetting yeah you talk about something that's embarrassing my dad wrestled with this up until he was about 11 years old which is which is which is old And his parents, unfortunately, did not have the foresight to reconsider their plan to send him to boarding school. My dad was in seventh grade. He was actually two grades ahead. He should have been in fifth, but he'd been advancing, and he was in the seventh grade. Went off the boarding school, and he still had a bedwetting problem. Now, I want you to imagine having that problem, and going off to boarding school, he would get up at five or six in the morning before anybody in his dorm, and because it was an open dorm, and he would get up and he would make his bed and he would shower before anybody else got up. I, I, I know for myself, um, I struggled with it till I was nine years of age, some of my brothers older, some younger, but that for me, that was an embarrassment. And, and and I can remember a shirt that I had worn that night and had put it on to go to school in, and it had been unwashed. And someone walked up to me and said, "Wow, Curtis, you really stink." And suddenly I realized I had worn the shirt that I had worn to bed that night, and I'm in third grade. And it was so embarrassing for me; it was shameful. Now, here's an, here's an honest truth, and, and I've done some research on this, but that is not an uncommon problem for, for people to, to have a bedwetting problem. I am so grateful that my children have not had to wrestle with that. But some maybe some of you here have had to wrestle with that, and, and it, it can feel shameful. It doesn't have to be. Here's a truth, though. As Christians... We can wrestle with this issue of shame, and, and no, it may not be bedwetting; it may be other things. But honestly, the most embarrassing things are the things of our past, and they—they—they and they, they seem to carry along with us with that shirt that I wore that one day and it's like this stinks and it's it's putrid and, and yet it hangs with me. This shame is like a shadow in my life and we need to talk about this this morning, how as believers we can get rid of this shame because as believers God wants us to be able to walk in a relationship with him that is not under this shadow of shame. So how do we get out of this shadow of shame? I want us to look at Joshua chapter 5 and see what he has for us because the truth is shame in our life can make us feel unworthy to obtain what God truly wants us to obtain. There are certain things in your life God wants you to go after, but it almost seems nebulous. It seems as if I'm not worthy. Perhaps someone, and I'm just going to be real here, church, someone who has lost their virginity might think, I just don't deserve a virtuous woman or a virtuous man to marry. Why? Because there's that shame. Someone who has cheated feels as if, how can God bless me financially since I've cheated? A teenage girl who's been through an abortion may feel, God, I'm just... I'm not worthy for you to bless me with children and that shame can hang with them. I'm going to read from it's just 12 verses and when I'm done you may step back and you're going to think, My, Pastor Mike, how does your introduction have anything to do with these 12 verses? what well, we're going to say are you there with me? Joshua chapter one, Joshua chapter five verse one. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast learned how the Lord, how Yahweh had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts, what did their hearts do, church? Melted. And they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeah Ha'aralot. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out and had been circumcised by all the excuse me all the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, you're aware I'm saying this parenthetically. The exception would be, of course, Joshua and Caleb. So he raised up their sons in their place. We call this the Joshua generation. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day in the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year, they ate from the produce of Canaan. Israel is about to take the land, and this phenomenal event, this drying up of the Jordan River, had begun to spread by word of mouth from city to city and town to town and fortified town to fortified town, and it says that the hearts of the Canaanites and the Amorites, the Canaanites all the way on the coast, all the way on the other side of, of Canaan, of the land of Canaan, the promised land, had heard word of this. They already found out about it. I, I don't know how many miles that is. I'm trying to remember 80, 100 miles wide, but you'll have to check that out for me. I'm, yeah, I'm a little off there, I'm sure. But that's, that's a lot of territory. That is a lot of cities and a lot of towns. Word spread fast. The Israelites are serving a God who is powerful, decimating all enemies before them, and they are coming into this land to take your homes. Because the time of, and what they didn't understand perhaps was the time of God's judgment had come. The sins of the Amorites had reached their fill. So their hearts had melted. Israel is poised. To be able to take the land, but before they do, something of profound significance needs to take place. Now, as you're going through those 12 verses, okay, Pastor Michael, I'm seeing some circumcision. I'm seeing a Passover. What's the big deal? I mean, mean, how many of you, as I read through those 12 verses, were just struck by a very strong emotion? Anybody here? Raise your hand. Very strong emotion? Boredom is not an emotion. I'm just saying, okay? You're probably wondering, oh my goodness, Pastor Mike's going to be preaching on this. I'm glad that the service is shortened to today. Wow, just some exciting verses here. <laughs> now, if you were a Jew, here's some of the emotions that you would experience. Utter disgust. Oh. Horror mixed with relief and tremendous gratitude. Did any of you happen to share those emotions as I read through these 12 verses? Probably not. I'm going to even go so far as the Jew reading this would be so, so stirred up emotionally that I'm going to conclude by saying this, that without these 12 verses, there are no victories in the land of Canaan. There is no promised land, and there is no book of Joshua. That's how firm I am with this. That's how, well, that's how important these 12 verses are. Let's look at the first thing that you see. As you read there in verse 2, a Jew would come across this name, and, and we might say Gibeath Heroloth. You know, like, Heroloth, like, <laughs> just go with that, Heroloth. No. Gibat Erolot. It means hill or mound of foreskins. Here we go. How many of you are starting to feel a little disgust rising up here? I'm going to keep pursuing this just a little bit. Bear with me. If you have to leave the room, that's fine. I am going to be discreet, but I am going to help us understand this because if we don't get this, we are going to miss the significance of these 12 verses. And I'm proposing to you that without these 12 verses, there's no promised land and there's no book of Joshua. That's how important and serious these 12 verses are. Foreskins were filthy. They're hard to keep clean. And so as a result, God chose to use that cutting off of the foreskin as a symbol of a covenant that they are making with God. In essence, I am getting rid of the filth of my life and I am making a covenant to follow you. We see this in the concept of circumcision of the heart. We see this as we talk about putting to death the the flesh or the old man. I'm going to get to that in a moment. But for these Jews, it was a sign of the covenant. They had not been circumcised for 40 years. Now, there's no explanation why. This was at the heart of the Abrahamic covenant. Why wouldn't they do this? We're just not told. Moses is overseeing the people, and for 40 years he does not insist on their circumcision. That was at the heart of the covenant of Abraham. Now, theologians have their ideas, but I'm just going to suggest this, that there there is a very specific reason. We might be able to speculate as far as why. And I would venture to say that part of that in, that speculation would include at least two things. Number one, there may not have been flint, and therefore an extremely sharp object to do this, but there was in Canaan. So we took flint knives. Flint can be very sharp, sharper than when you're trying, much sharper than some rock you're trying to sharpen. And... These guys do not want that to take very long. They want it over and done with, okay? Maybe there's a little bit of grace that God is giving them. Here, you, okay, we'll, we'll just wait until you get to the land of Canaan or Flint, blah, blah, blah. Okay, got the picture? Great. The other is that God is wanting this scene to be indelibly marked in their mind so that as an entire nation, they go through this together not just individually, when the child reaches the age of eight days, which would be typical for circumcision. Now, I'm going to tell you something here. I don't mean to gross you out, but I'm I'm going to share this because we need to understand the utter disgust and repulsion that a Jew feels at this moment. It is called Gibe'at Ha'erolot, meaning hill or mound of foreskins. Now, I just want you to think about this for just a moment. You would not want to circumcise a man on a hill, okay? You would want to circumcise him in a ravine or some other place discreet. May I suggest that after circumcising one million men, that before that moment, there was no hill. It was called a hill after they buried it. The reason why I am delving into this is because before they went into the promised land, they had to deal with an issue, and it has far more to do with just foreskin, okay? It has to do with the disgust, the utter repulsion of their past life. Because after they are circumcised, probably nearly one million men circumcised, the prophetic word that God gives to Joshua is now the reproach of Egypt is gone. It is rolled away. What is the reproach of Egypt? It is their slavery. It is their bondage. It is their past life that they lived in. They are no longer slaves. Now we must understand that this slavery, it was a repulsion to them. If, if you've read much about the slavery in America, if you've seen the movie Roots when I was, I guess that was in the 70s, wasn't it? When I was a young guy, I, I watched this movie and it repulsed me. I just thought, how can you treat humans like this? You, you treat them worse than your property you treat them like dung like foreskins you treat them with utter disgust you you have no problem no conviction whatsoever raping your slave women how can you think this way slavery was a disgust it was like filth it was i don't even want to associate myself with that anymore it was so deriding, and demeaning to the slave. And these slaves, Israel as a nation in slavery, were treated far worse, far worse than the slaves were treated in America. That slavery, that reproach, was like our sin, that as a sinner, to us it is disgraceful it is shameful even unbelievers they realize that some of their past sins they are not proud of they regret they're just somehow maybe I can cover this up maybe somehow you know I I can put it in my closet and, and never remember it again and for many, and maybe many of us, before we came to Christ, there were, as they say the, the phrases, skeletons in our closets. And we had many of them. And we locked that door, and we would they would never, ever surface again. And yet, as you go through life, you're wondering, will anyone ever find out? Will anyone ever speak publicly about this disgusting thing in my life? Romans 6 says that we were at one time slaves to sin. Romans 6 also says that we were buried with Christ in baptism. That we by his resurrection that we were raised to life. And in that baptism Our old man has been put to death. It has been crucified. Do you know what the old man is? No, I'm not talking about your dad. I am talking about the old you before you came to Christ. When you were in slavery in Egypt, if you will, when you were wrapped up and enslaved to enslaved to sin. When 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 shame hung about your neck like an albatross. When you would try to to get free from the guilt of your sin, you could not. You were you were locked. You were locked in. You were you were enslaved with these chains of, of darkness. And you were a slave to sin. But your old man, when you came to Christ, your old man was crucified with Christ. The old Jew is no longer. And the problem, though, is sometimes he rears, that old Jew rears its ugly head. And yes, it is not only ugly, it is disgusting. It is wretched. Now, Jimmy did not know when he gave his talk Friday night, why do we serve Christ? Why do we follow Jesus that I was going to be preaching this sermon? I didn't know that he was going to be talking on what he was talking about. But he talked about what I'm talking about this morning. Uh, I I think you did an outstanding job, Jim. I really do. Um, Maybe some of the guys who are talking about some of the disgusting things in their life. I understand why some of the ladies said, I got to leave for just a moment. But Jim's idea and point was that sin is disgusting. And that when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, excellent point, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was saying, Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Jesus was recognizing the filth and the stench and the shame and the slime of sin and he was going to be I- immersed in it. He was going to be baptized and that's an appropriate word because the, he even said, I'm going to be baptized that you cannot be baptized with the suffering. And Jesus was baptized in suffering. He was immersed in the filth and the stench of these foreskins, if you will, of this hill of foreskins in which you would disgust. And God himself was going to be taking upon himself these sins, your sins, this disgust, this guilt, this this shame. Jim brought up a great point, Isaiah 64, 6. At our best, our righteousness are as filthy rags. That's at our best, as sinners, as sinners. Our best. This is my best. This is my righteous. These are good. This is when I walked the old lady across the street. This is is when I pulled out of my pocket a $5 bill and gave it to that homeless guy. It's my best, God. And yet our best is tainted with sin. So that when Isaiah uses a very specific word, the NIV is so gracious in translating it filthy rags, but it literally meant menstrual cloth disgust, shame. That's my best that I have to offer you apart from Christ. Jesus realized the repugnancy of sin. The putrescence of sin from Princess Bride the old man though has been crucified our slavery to sin and that old lifestyle it's in the past it's gone He says, the reproach of Egypt has been rolled away. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Josh, if you could put that up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul reminds these Corinthians. He wants them to know, hey, that old you, that old man, that's not who you are anymore. And he says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And he goes over to verses 19 and 20. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple now in Christ? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought, you were purchased, you were redeemed at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, you may remember as we were going through the book of Exodus, and we're going to just read a few of those verses. When we were going through the book of Exodus several months ago, we read through this verse, and the life group that uh, that I was in kind of focused on these verses a bit, kind of drawing out the implications, rich truth and implications of them. And in verses 6 through 8, God is talking to Moses, and he says, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh. And that was the name revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. This idea of redemption is key in this story of the Jews, Exodus from Egypt, that by God pouring out his judgments upon the gods of Egypt. He, in essence, was not just rescuing but redeeming. He was buying the slaves, his people, slaves in Egypt. He was buying them to be his very own people so that the reproach of Egypt would one day no longer hang over them like a shadow, like a cloud, but they would be able to come out from under this shadow of 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 reproach, this shadow of disgrace and shame, and they would be able to walk in everything that God has for them. You see, that's why I believe this chapter starts off with talking about this event of the drying up of the Jordan. Because the taking of the land has very little to do with the just Joshua generation. They are very simply trying to obey God. It is God's grace that he pours out. You see God's grace as he judges Egypt, as he disbands and and just decimates the army of Egypt in the Red Sea, as he ravaged the land of Egypt because they had sought to destroy Israel and keep them under their thumb. Do you remember why? Because they become so numerous, probably around the area of two million or so plus. And to keep them under the Pharaoh's thumbs, he had to to enslave them and treat them harshly so that they would would feel so mentally decimated, so mentally uh, uh, and, and spiritually oppressed And physically oppressed. That they would not even think of rising up against them. Because they were under the thumb of Pharaoh and his taskmasters. And it was a cruel bondage. Church, we are no longer slaves. As slaves coming out of Egypt, the Jews were immersed in the culture of Egypt and it had seeped into them. Idolatry, the very thing that God did to rescue them, judging the gods of Egypt, it had worn off and it had rubbed off onto them. They were quick to turn to idolatry. They were quick to think, wow, we had it better in Egypt. They were quick to complain. They were quick to abandon hope in God. You know, any difficulty that they went through, God must not be for us. Let's go back to Egypt. Really? The reproach of Egypt as slaves being tortured as you were. And God is saying, this day. I am rolling back the reproach of Egypt. You are no longer slaves. You are no longer submitting to these cruel taskmasters that's formed in you this mindset of of being under uh, or being oppressed by the enemy. No longer will their culture, their, their idolatrous culture, infect you. So that Moses is gone for just 40 days and what do they do? He must have died. We should take it upon ourselves to worship the Lord. So let's build a calf idol. Really? Let's abandon God and worship our own gods in essence. Let's do it our way. And yet the very first and second commandment that God had given to Moses, that he was about to share with them, they had already stumbled into it. Worship no other gods and have no idols before me. All of this, the culture of Egypt, the slavery, the mindset, gone. It's all gone. Because as you step into this new land, you need to think differently. You need to follow me totally differently. You need to trust me completely. You need to live your life according to my laws. You need to be fully devoted to me, and you need to crucify the old man, to use New Testament terminology. And this is how he puts it the reproach of Egypt is rolled away. The shame, the disgust, the horror. When they look at the mound of foreskins, that's our old way of life. That is not who I am anymore. Your old man, that is not who you are anymore. You are not that way anymore. The abortion, forgiven. Losing your virginity as a young man or a young woman. It is covered by the blood of Jesus. The pornography from the past, gone. Over with. Shame. Lifted. Gone. No longer under its reproach. Because we are in Christ. And the cross. Purchased us at great price. That is how much God loves you. Jesus, his son, would take upon himself, your old man, all of your sins, all of the shame, all of the disgrace, the disgust, all the shame, and die for you. For you. Because he is wanting you, To come into his promised land. I'm speaking from a New Testament perspective at this point. You see, when you read through the New Testament, my Bible always uses the term saints, which means holy ones, to talk about true believers in Jesus. He doesn't call us sinners anymore. Why? Because sin is what characterizes a sinner. Holiness is what characterizes a saint or holy one. Now, we are saints, holy ones, who on occasion sin, but we are not sinners, those who practice regularly sin and are addicted to sin and on occasion do good things. We are saints. The old man is crucified, the shame is lifted, it's forgiven. If we are no longer slaves, if Egypt was no longer slaves, what term? What term would God want to bestow upon them as they are now to come into their inheritance, this promised land? This is the reason I'm going to take up just a few minutes and touch on this idea of the Passover. So that night, the night in which God struck with the 10th plague, The death angel went through Egypt. Pharaoh's heart had been hardened. He had been warned that this would happen. I can only imagine Moses and Aaron, please, please listen to me. This is about to come upon you. You need to flee. You need to do what's right. And it says Moses' heart began to be softened. Then, boom, it hardened up again. No, I will not let you go to worship your God. You are under my thumb. And Pharaoh's heart was so hardened, his officials' hearts were so hardened, and he refused to let them go. And God sent forth the death angel, and the firstborn of both man and animal died that night. The horror. And it wasn't just children, it was adults as well. Now, I'm fifth born in my family. How many of you were first born in your family? Zach, Zach, you're first born, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, guys, you're all dead. You would, if you were in Egypt, you would have died. And it would have torn me up to see my oldest die, holding her in my arms and the anger, and the outrage. But for Jews, their emotion would be horror, the vengeance of their God. And and, and there was no mercy except in this. Take the blood of a lamb and put it over your threshold. If you do this, this is a sign that you are for me, and your heart is turned toward me will rescue you, and no harm will come to your family. No harm will come to your animals. So for the Jew, the horror of God's judgment was mixed with inexplicable gratitude that they were kept safe. Let me just share this with you. It says in Exodus 4, 22 to 23. He's speaking to Moses, he says, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. When a Jew celebrates the Passover, The thing that comes to his mind is that the firstborn of Egypt all died. But me, as a Jew, God's firstborn son, I was kept safe. What a reminder. You are no longer a slave of Egypt. You are no longer uh, forced into servitude by these taskmasters. No, you are a son of the most high God and it is only sons, not slaves that inherit anything. If you're gonna inherit this land, you need to know that you know you are no longer a slave, but you are a son of inheritance. And the Lord would speak to your heart. The shame of your past is overshadowed by the cross. It is washed away. Come out from under the, the, the shadow of the shame and embrace the cross because you are sons and daughters of the god that came to rescue you and he is inviting you to inherit this promised land the disgust of of all that the old man was to you or old woman if you will that was to, that implicated you that convicted you and condemned you gone cut off that is no longer you because you're not a slave, you're a son, you're a daughter. You have an inheritance and as they are about to take this land, this promised land, as sons and daughters, the firstborn of God, it is rightfully theirs. And for a firstborn, a double portion would be given. Now, to, to demonstrate the the significance of this event, it concludes in verse 12. The manna stopped. No more manna. No more manna, no more water from the rock, no more quail. I mean, it specifically mentions just manna, but the idea is manna for the Jew was God's life support system for them. Can I ask you this question? Where would you rather be? working your fields, enjoying a job and family or in the hospital on a life support system. Well, you know what? At least you're alive. At least through this miracle of technology, you are alive. God had provided manna and demonstrated that in him and only in him would they find strength, would they find day-to-day help. But now that they're in the promised land, This is what I've been saving for you. The manna was temporary. It sustained them in the desert. But it was manna every day. Manna every day. When I was a kid, I used to have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day. When I became an adult, I hated peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Ugh! When, when you know, I'd be heading off to work, Meredith would make me a sandwich. and say, please don't make a peanut butter and jelly. Thank you very much. I just needed a few years, maybe, okay, a lot of years, away from peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That was my manna. Okay, God, you have something rich for me, so I married a woman who knew how to cook. All right, this was the promised land. Woo, yes, the promised land. God has a promised land for us. He has a good life in what it is to inherit everything he has for us as his children, but not as slaves, as sons, as daughters, to receive that rightful inheritance. I'm just going to close with this little illustration. I remember several years ago that I was working on my car, and it was an old car. It was a, 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 what was it, a a 1981 Colony Park, a Mercury Colony Park uh, station wagon. And it already had a, I had to replace the engine in it already. I I can't remember how many miles were on it. And it it stalled. It would not start up for me one day. So I thought, well, I'm going to fix this i'm looking at the starter i'm looking at the solenoid i'm looking at stuff i don't even know what to call and i'm just six hours later that car still will not start my next door neighbor who happened to be a pastor uh, of a church nearby came up to me because he saw my engine up he grew up on a farm worked on all kinds of engines he said mike so what's the problem He said, my problem is my car. It's dead. I thought it was this, and I changed it, and this, and this, and I don't know what else to do. And he looked at it, and in 15 minutes, he had that thing started. He diagnosed it in five. It just took him 10 to clean it up. When I looked at the battery, there was no corrosion that I could see. But he said, Mike, let's just take the negative off, and since you have a connector on it, let's look under the connector because maybe there's corrosion there. Opened it up, all kinds of corrosion. So he cut it off, he redid what he needed to do, everything cleaned up, put it on, vroom! Six hours, I got nowhere. 15 minutes, he got it started for me. Here's my point sin, this shame is like the corrosiveness of the battery acid in our lives. We go nowhere with shame, it will stop your engine it will stop your life purpose in its tracks. You will feel that shame, you will feel the unworthiness, and you will begin to think, God couldn't bless me like that. God wouldn't have this good for me. God would not open this door for me. I'm not worthy to do this. And the voice of the enemy of condemnation and unworthiness. And are we unworthy? Absolutely. But we are sons and daughters to receive an inheritance from him who is worthy. Jesus, the firstborn of God. He is the one who secured all of this for us. It is by the cross. That the old man is crucified. It's by the cross and by the blood of Jesus that the shame is washed away. So I'm going to challenge you come out from under the shadow of shame this morning. God has a promised land for you. Set that aside. All the voices of the enemy, yappity, 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 just condemning and, and saying how unworthy you are, but we serve a God, Jesus Himself, who is worthy, and guess where we are? In Christ. We are in Christ. Can you stand with me? The last chapter of John, three times Jesus asks Peter, Do you love me? To the point of embarrassment. And finally Peter says, Jesus, feeling shame, you know that I love you. And without reminding Peter of the three times he denied him, he just spoke to him and said, Then feed my sheep. In essence, Come, follow me in this new adventure that I have called you to and ordained you as an apostle. Feed my sheep. And Jesus in those few verses broke the shame off of Peter's shoulders so he can serve him. Let Jesus do that for you this morning. Father, I want to thank you Your heart is inclined towards us. You are so good. Your mercy is new every morning. Your love is unfailing. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Our God is good. Through the cross, he holds nothing against us. Jesus, break off this shame that the devil is wanting to saturate us and soak us in to hold us back and keep us from this incredible, marvelous inheritance that you have for us. Help us see who we truly are in you, Jesus. Roll the reproach away of our past, gone, and empower us with your call and with your purpose, and with that vision of the cross that day to day reminds us of your love. We are your sons and daughters. God, you are so good. Break the shame off of every shoulder here this morning. And fill us with your purpose. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.